very warm welcome to a brand new City Break series, City Breaks London. I'm Marion Jones, I'm a linguist, I'm a language teacher, and I'm a quite amateur podcaster. Thought this might be a good moment for an introduction to City Breaks itself, for anyone who's joining us new. I think London's probably going to be quite a popular City Break series, so there may well be some new listeners. And what I'm trying to do in City Breaks is just take you to some of the cities that I've very much enjoyed visiting and share with you some of the reading and research I did about them before I went, while I was there, and in some cases after I got back as well. Bit of a top-up. Because I'm one of those people who really likes to know what I'm looking at when I go somewhere. If I'm going round a castle, I want to know who built it and why and what juicy stories have unfolded there. I usually read quite a selection of books before I go somewhere starting with the guidebooks, a look into some history books perhaps, maybe some novels written by a well-known writer from that city, all that sort of thing. And it struck me that there isn't really one place where you can find all that handily packaged up. So City Breaks was born. OK, this then is City Breaks London, which I have been thinking about since before I did the first series, and that's two and a half, nearly three years ago now. I live only a couple of hours by train away from London, go up there for a whole variety of reasons. And so once I started working on City Break, I made a habit of, every time I went, of doing a bit more research and collecting information. This turned out to be a jolly good thing once we were shut down in lockdown. Gallivanting round foreign cities, or indeed British cities, had to come to an end, and so I've been working on the London series during that time. Luckily there was a moment in the summer when I did manage to get up there between lockdowns, And so now, finally, finally, I've arrived at the point where I'm ready to go. Again, if you're new to City Breaks, you may not know that the introduction always follows the same pattern. So today I'll be giving a very brief introduction to the city, its geography, its history, a few cultural snippets to whet your appetite, and then a rundown of the episodes which I'm planning to produce over the next few months. It's going to be the longest series ever. I think there are going to be 26 episodes. That might vary slightly as we go along, but so far the record is Paris, which is 22. So then, without further ado, London. London, which comes very near the top every time whenever there's a survey asking people which cities they'd most like to visit. London, which is surely famous all over the world. There can't be anybody, I don't think, looking at, I don't know, a street with a red bus in it, or a tube sign, or a picture of Big Ben. Who doesn't know which city that photograph was taken in. But having said that, of course, it's massive. It's very hard to pin down. Are we talking about the London of Harrods or the London of kebab shops? Both there. Are we talking about the money and the wealth connected with, let's say, the Shard or other buildings in the City of London? As if London oozes wealth from every pavement, which of course isn't true. Do we mean the City of St Paul's? Well, yes, but let's not forget that there are synagogues and temples and mosques too. All of this was nicely summed up by the writer Norman Collins in the preface to his novel London Belongs to Me. He wrote it, in fact, just after the Second World War, so you may hear the odd thing that doesn't ring 100% true for 21st century London, but nevertheless, a paragraph which I'm going to read you in a moment, I thought really summed up the great variety that London has to offer. So, here goes. London is more than a collection of streets and markets. Its wren churches, 
and ABC tea shops, its Burlington Arcade and the Temple, its the Athenaeum and the Adelphi Arches, its Kennington Gasometer and the Zoo, its the Iron Bridge at Charing Cross, and the Statue of Eros at Piccadilly Circus, its the Serpentine and Moss Brothers, its Paddington Recreation Ground and the Nelson Column, its Big Ben and the Horse Guards, its the National Gallery and Pims, its the Victoria Palace and Ludgate Hill, its the second-hand shops and the undertakers and the cinemas and the obscure backstreet chapels, its the waif and stray societies and the fortune tellers and the pub on the corner and the trams. That's London. OK, so there aren't any trams and one or two of those other things have disappeared, but it does give you the idea of so many different things being packed into one city. A very similar idea was expressed in the 18th century by one of those writers most associated with London, Dr Samuel Johnson. He wrote, He who is tired of London is tired of life, for there is in London all that life can afford. So then, covering London's going to be a major task. Let's get started. Normally I do a little geographical introduction, but I'm guessing everybody knows that London is in southern England, with all that that means for the climate. So yes, you may well find there are April showers and crisp autumn sunny afternoons. Equally, you might find that on a day in March it's unseasonally warm, or that an August day is grey and drizzly. I think the best way to describe London weather would be to say, expect the unexpected. Although having said that, there'll be no great extremes, and we do get pretty much the sort of weather you might expect in the four seasons. One defining feature of London, I think, is its size. Nine million people, 600 square miles, 30 miles or so from east to west, so a whole day's walk. And a second defining feature is the River Thames. It starts in Gloucestershire, it flows through Oxfordshire and Berkshire and eventually snakes through London, from west to east on its way to the Thames Estuary and the North Sea. 215 miles or so, but the most famous bits are certainly those which flow through London. And I think one way to sort of picture London in your head is to think about what you'd see on a river journey through it. So imagine perhaps getting on, I don't know, perhaps in Oxford, and sailing through Henley and Windsor and past Hampton Court and Putney, and arriving then in central London. You'll be sailing past Chelsea and on into Westminster. Think Houses of Parliament and Westminster Abbey. A little bit further on, on the southern side, so on your right as you're sailing from west to east, the London Eye and the South Bank, with its theatres and street performers and lovely mix of culture and relaxation. Just past that, on the North Bank, so on your left, the Embankment, Charing Cross, with Trafalgar Square sitting just behind it. You'll be going under Waterloo Bridge. You'll have the National Theatre on your right, under Blackfriars Bridge then, which is round about where the city begins, so on the Northern Bank, on your left. Just as you arrive at the Millennium Bridge, you'll have St Paul's on your left, on your right, Tate Modern and Shakespeare's Globe. Carry on then under Southwark Bridge and London Bridge towards Tower Bridge, where, of course, on your left-hand side, you'll be sailing past the Tower of London, then on through London's docklands, past Canary Wharf, for example, with its shiny new high-rise buildings, looping round to the south past Greenwich, 
another loop a little bit further on, past the Millennium Dome, and then out of London, eastwards, towards the North Sea. Everyone who knows London knows that North and South are the two big divides. The North Bank is one thing, the South Bank quite another. The North Bank, I think it's fair to say, has got all the big hitters from a visiting point of view. Most of the places that you're likely to go to will be on the North Bank. So another way to orientate yourself is to imagine a walk through the northern half of the city, just a few streets north of the river itself. So perhaps you'll start in Kensington and Knightsbridge and walk past Hyde Park, past Hyde Park Corner and the Wellington Arch to St James's Park. If you saunter through that, you'll find yourself in Westminster. And from Parliament Square then, you could take Whitehall, which leads to Trafalgar Square. I think if you had to pick one place that is the centre, in inverted commas, of London, perhaps it would be Trafalgar Square. Once you're at Trafalgar Square, you're really at the beginning of the West End, Theatreland, areas with such well-known names as Piccadilly Circus and Leicester Square, Covent Garden too, of course. Alternatively, from Trafalgar Square, if you've arrived from Whitehall, you can take a right along the Strand, which will take you to Fleet Street and the City of London, St Paul's, Bank of England, etc., and then on past that to Tower Hill and the Tower of London. That walk takes us from west to east, through the very centre of the city, but it certainly doesn't cover everything. If we go a few streets further north and start again, we could do a different walk, starting perhaps at Regent's Park then walking through Bloomsbury, the intellectual bit with the Georgian squares and the British Museum, and Hoburn, one of central London's busiest streets, but where you can take a couple of little turns and find yourself in the Inns of Court, one of the most tranquil and ancient areas of the city, with its law courts and its little squares of greenery, flower gardens, churches, etc. You're also at that point not too far from King's Cross and St Pancras. And if you were to carry on walking east, you'd get to places that probably as a visitor you aren't going to very much, but which you may well have heard of, so Shoreditch and Bethnal Green and Hackney and Stepney. All of that before you've been south of the river at all. There is less to see in the southern half, but we certainly will be visiting. There's Southwark for a start with Shakespeare's Globe and Southwark Cathedral, one of London's best food markets, Borough Market, and then further east from there, you come to the Docklands with its former warehouses and its road names suggestive of faraway places. Jamaica Road, for instance. So, I hope that gives you enough to hang on to and think, yep, I've got the big picture in my mind. And after geography comes history, because that's the other way to really get your head around some of the things that you're going to be visiting. And it has to be said, when it comes to the history of London, there is so much information that you could try and process. Probably not helpful, but to have a brief timeline in your head will certainly help you understand so much more the places that you go to visit. Actually, I can give one good tip here, which is that if you really are interested in the history of London, obviously there's lots of reading you could do, but there's also the wonderful Museum of London, where multiple exhibits lay it all out for you in chronological order. If history's your thing, you might like to do a visit there early on in your trip to London. For others, it's perhaps not what you want to do on your first visit, but certainly if you come to London more than once and you like to spend a morning or an afternoon piecing together all the different things you've seen and putting them in a historical context, then the Museum of London is certainly the place to do that. 
So, a brief timeline then. I want to stick to the things which are going to be useful to know in the context of places that we're going to be visiting. So I'm going to skate over the Romans and Saxons and Danes and whatnot and start with Edward the Confessor, a king of whom you will definitely hear more in one of the early episodes, for he it was who built the very first church at Westminster, the forerunner of today's Westminster Abbey. And he ruled between 1042 and 1066. 1066 is a date that anyone who knows any English history at all knows, because that's when the Normans arrived. Indeed, it was on Christmas Day in that year when William the Conqueror was crowned King of England in Westminster Abbey. And the other part of London which very much relates to him is the Tower of London, which he built pretty much as soon as he got here as a defence. He knew he'd taken over someone else's country. He knew that he had to impress on everyone that he was powerful and shouldn't be contradicted. So the Tower of London makes that statement. Medieval London? will feature in quite a few of the episodes that I'm going to do. So centering on the City of London, the one square mile, which contains St Paul's and the Bank of England, but which in medieval times was a collection of little narrow streets and timbered houses, some of which still exist today. Think markets and guilds and people going jousting for entertainment. Think squalor and slops in the streets. Think the London of Chaucer. And in 1348, I'm afraid we have to think of the Black Death, which ravaged the city and killed two-thirds of the population. The other major drama in the 14th century, which played out in London, or came to a head in London, I should say, is the Peasants' Revolt, when one King Richard II, only 14 at the time, met the revolting peasants who'd come up to London to protest about the new taxation system, which was costing them more money than they wanted to pay. That confrontation took place at Smithfield, just a few minutes' walk from where St Paul's is today, and it's a story I'll be coming back to in the very next episode on the City of London. Tudor London? The Tudor period began in 1485 when Henry Tudor, brackets Henry VII, came to the throne. Royalty in those days was centred on the Palace of Whitehall. We still have Whitehall, the street, but we don't have the palace anymore. More about that in a subsequent episode. But other palaces from that period are the ones at Richmond and Greenwich and Hampton Court. Henry VIII, possibly the best-known Tudor king, he's going to feature majorly in episodes, for example, like the one on Hampton Court. You probably know that his reign was an era of terrible religious turmoil, as in fact were the years after his death under his various children, Edward and Mary and Elizabeth, and that is the era that we most connect with the terrible beheadings that took place at the Tower of London and in Westminster. Elizabethan London was a very particular place, so just the beginnings of the explorer's era, which brought such wealth to the city of London, led to the growth of trade. It was Shakespeare's London too, of course. And just a few years after Elizabeth's death, following on really from all the turmoil between Catholics and Protestants, came an incident which looms very large still today in English history, and that was the Gunpowder Plot. In 1605, a group of young Catholics, determined to do something about the persecution of Catholics, hit on the idea of putting gunpowder into the Houses of Parliament and blowing the whole lot up. That was right at the beginning of the 17th century, and it turned out to be a century very much marked by unrest. 
not least the Civil War. So the arguments between Parliament and Charles I about who had how much power, the fact that Charles I tried very hard to rule without Parliament as far as he possibly could, led to his trial at Westminster Hall and his execution outside the banqueting house, just a few minutes' walk from Trafalgar Square. The Protectorate under Oliver Cromwell in fact only lasted 11 years, from 1649, until the restoration in 1660 of Charles I's son, Charles II. That was certainly an era when a lot was happening in London. The growth of the theatre, the founding of the Royal Society with all those clever scientists and architects and people, Christopher Wren, Isaac Newton, etc. I think probably in the early 1660s it really felt as if London was on a roll. But, as we have learnt more recently, things can go badly wrong. The unexpected arrived in the shape of the plague in 1665, which once again devastated London. In the peak week in September of that year, 12,000 people died. And that was followed, as you probably know, one year later by the Great Fire of London, which was just as devastating. 80% of the city was destroyed. That included 13,000 houses. 87 churches, and perhaps as significantly as any of those other things, the destruction of Old St Paul's. It was followed throughout the rest of the 17th century by the most amazing rebuilding programme under people like Christopher Wren, which gave us St Paul's as we know it today, a whole host of other churches which had to be rebuilt, and of course much, much more. 18th century London was a period of rapid population growth, a period when the city really emerged much more in the form that we know it in today. So starting with the coffee houses where people met to discuss business, the growth of insurance markets, companies like Lloyd's of London, the founding of the Bank of England, more and more overseas trade, all of this leading to the point where London was the largest city in the world with a population of nearly a million people. Throughout the 19th century, more growth, much of it based on London's role as capital of the empire, so so many seeds being sown for controversies which are only really today in the 21st century being properly discussed. Regency London was the term for the period 1820 to 1830, because that was the rule of the Prince Regent, who became George IV when his father George III died, and some of London's best-known architectural projects date from then. Regent's Park, for example, and Regent Street itself. The 1820s saw the opening of such illustrious London institutions as the National Gallery, 1824, and the University of London, 1826. Then, of course, there's the Victorian era. Victoria came to the throne in 1837. One great event which marked London in her reign early on was in 1851, the Great Exhibition, when the Crystal Palace was built and set up in Hyde Park, and the world came to London to see innovations and what industry could do, all sorts of new inventions. A focus, if you like, for the industrialisation which was going to characterise London for the rest of the century. London, at this point, was the richest nation in the world. We're talking of an era when the Ritz was opened, when Harrods was opened. We're also talking, though, of an era when the Match Girls from the Bryant and May factory in Bow in East London, went on strike in protest at the working conditions which were wearing them out and in some cases killing them. 
If you've read any Dickens, you might know all about these social issues from the late 19th century. Then about the 20th century, well, the early part was marked by things like the suffragettes and their call for votes for women. Edwardian London, the first decade or so of the 20th century, presided over by King Edward, who had a much jollier approach to life than his rather buttoned-up mum, Queen Victoria. And that period, I think, looked back on as an age of innocence, really, before the devastation of World War I. London, after that, was very much marked by the First World War, the Great Depression, and particularly, I think, by World War Two, when it underwent the Blitz, the mass bombing campaign from 1940 to 41, especially, which destroyed so much of London. An era we're reminded of by iconic photographs, such as the ones of King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, so the current Queen's parents, visiting the East End after it had been badly bombed. And, secondly, a photo which travelled worldwide of St Paul's Cathedral standing defiant and proud amid bombed ruins everywhere else. A photo which seemed to say, London is going to survive this. The rest of the 20th century, lots of rebuilding and slum clearance in the 1950s after the war, the Festival of Britain in 1951, so exactly a 100 years after Prince Albert's Great Exhibition. Lots of changes to the population, the arrival of the Windrush generation from the Caribbean, of large groups of people from the Indian subcontinent, so the beginnings of multicultural London really. The swinging 60s of course, when London was the focus of the world's youth, the trendy place of Carnaby Street and Bieber fashion etc., the latter part of the 20th century defined perhaps by wealth in the city, yuppiedom, recessions, all sorts of drama. And then the 21st century, opening in London anyway, with the opening of the Millennium Dome in the year 2000, hit again by disaster in July 2005 when London was bombed by terrorists. And then two defining moments in 2012, the Olympics, when the world came to London again, and London put on an excellent show, particularly in the way it managed to secure great interest not just for the Olympics, but for the Paralympics which ran alongside it. And the second moment in 2012 again, the Queen's Diamond Jubilee when Royal London came out in force, and television pictures were beamed all over the world of the Queen riding up the Mall, the flags, the crowds, the guards, the horses, one of those moments which we Brits love, but which we secretly suspect must make some foreigners at least think that we are slightly barking mad. So that was the briefest of timelines, but one which I hope will give you a few hooks on which to pin some of the ideas which are coming in the episodes to follow. And I hope too that they give some idea of the grand variety that there is in London. Yes, we're talking Big Ben and Red Buses and the Mall and Buckingham Palace. It's the city of royalty for sure where the Queen still goes to the state opening of Parliament in a horse-drawn carriage, and the guards stand proudly outside the palaces in their red jackets and their bearskin hats. Look at any postcard stand outside any little shop in central London, I'm pretty sure you'll see the faces of the royal family. It's the city of the Thames as well. You can go on riverboat trips today, and while you're doing it, you can think back to all those periods in history when royalty used the river as the main means of transport between Whitehall and the Tower, say, or out to Hampton Court. London is certainly the city of grand buildings, recognised all over the world, like the Palace of Westminster, 
but it's also the city of tiny little streets. Two minutes' walk from St Paul's, for example, you are suddenly in a very different world. Dr Johnson had something to say about that. If you wish to have just a notion of the magnitude of this city, he wrote, you must not be satisfied with seeing its great streets and squares, but must survey the innumerable little lanes and courts. So we'll be going to Regent Street and Whitehall, of course, but also to the Inns of Court, and hunting out a few remaining Elizabethan streets here and there. But nor will we be neglecting the ultra-modern, the shard Canary Wharf, the Lloyd's Building, which caused such a stir when it was plonked in the late 20th century, bang in the middle of the City of London. So yes, London is the city of money and banks and insurance, the city to which Dick Whittington came to make his fortune. But it's also the city of churches, the world-famous ones like Westminster Abbey and St Paul's, but dozens and dozens of others. I think there are 47 churches just in the square mile, known as the City of London, many of them tiny, many of them with centuries of history behind them. It's one of the world's great shopping cities too, isn't it, London? Whether we're talking Oxford Street and Regent Street, or maybe the more specialist places. If you want the very best shirt, go to a shirt maker in German Street. What about the markets in Camden and Brick Lane? It's the city of theatres too. I think there are 39 West End theatres, some of which have been the birthplace of plays and musicals which have gone on to become famous all over the globe. And so on and so on. Let's leave the last word on the variety of London to the 18th century companion of Dr Johnson, one James Boswell, who wrote, By seeing London, I have seen as much of life as the world can show. And just to finish off then, a quick rundown of what to expect in the episodes to come. I haven't yet written them all up in full, so this might be a moving picture, but it looks as if there are going to be 26 episodes in total. In the next one, number two, we must start in the heart of the city, at St Paul's. That gets an episode to itself, because there are so many stories attached to it. For episodes three and four, I'm going to stay at that end of London and take a more in-depth look at the City of London, with all the things there are to learn and see there, from the Mansion House and the Guildhall to some of Wren's churches, and the idea of the city as a financial powerhouse. And then in the fourth episode, off to the Tower of London, where there are many gruesome tales to be told. After that, let's go west to Westminster for an episode on Westminster Abbey, which has seen the coronation of, I think it's 39 English monarchs, and where there are stories to be told about royal weddings and the tomb of the unknown soldier. And then pop next door for episode 6 to the Palace of Westminster, where we can have a closer look at the arguments between Charles I and his Parliament, maybe enjoy extracts from one or two of the great Victorian speeches, give a little airtime to Winston Churchill, of course because that was where he made some of those speeches which have become so famous down the decades. The few episodes after that are wander through more of central London, so one on Whitehall and Trafalgar Square, both of which have a number of must-sees from the War Cabinet Rooms, to the Banqueting House, to the National Gallery. And then from there we can pop up the Mall for episode 8 to Buckingham Palace, and include also the Royal Muse next door, which is where you can see all those lovely horses that draw all the carriages. Episode 9 is going to cover two different areas, the Inns of Court and Fleet Street, both great British institutions, where the legal system and the great British press have their roots. 
episode 10, let's go up the Strand and to Covent Garden and Piccadilly and Leicester Square, so theatre land really. Episode 11, let's go down to Kensington or Victoria and Albert's London, as you could call it, because there's Kensington Palace and some of the great museums and the Royal Albert Hall and the Royal Albert Memorial. And then finally, in episode 12, let's get south of the river to Southwark so we can have a look at the Globe and Shakespeare's London generally. Continuing the literary theme in episode 13, a focus on Dickens, so the Dickens Museum, something about his nighttime walks through the city of London, one or two extracts from his fiction, which focus on particular areas of the city. And then in episode 14, those other literary intellectuals, the Bloomsbury Group. So we'll have a wander through the Bloomsbury Squares, perhaps visit the British Museum, talk about literary London, particularly in the 1920s and 30s. A complete change for episode 15, out to the East End. We've got some fascinating material from autobiographies and histories about the East End of London as it was at the very beginning of the 20th century, and also some interesting ideas on things that you can see there today, which will help you learn about it. The Ragged School Museum, for example. After that, a few episodes which go a little bit outside London, but not too far. So off to Hampstead and Highgate, for example, to see Keats's house and Hampstead Heath. And in the case of Highgate, London's best-known cemetery, which I've seen described as a tombstone with a view and where such people as Marx and George Eliot and all sorts of other people are buried. Episode 17, off to Greenwich, where there is, yes, the Royal Observatory, but also the Queen's House, built by James I for his wife Anne, and lived into by later queens such as Henrietta Maria, Charles I's wife, and where there's also a maritime flavour, so the National Maritime Museum and the Cutty Sark. Episode 18 is going to be devoted to London's parks, which I think are, rightly, world famous. So we'll have a look at some of the royal parks, such as Hyde Park, with Speaker's Corner and Apsley House, the Duke of Wellington's house, and Regent's Park too, where of course there's London Zoo. We mustn't forget Green Park, right by Buckingham Palace, or Kensington Gardens. I've read that there are 4,900 acres of royal park in London, and For all that it is a huge, sprawling metropolis, it is one of the world's cities most defined by its parklands, I think. Episode 19, Down to the River and the Docks. Lots of stories of river trips from history. People going off to be beheaded at the Tower. Henry VIII showing off on his way to Hampton Court, that sort of thing. But at the same time, let's take in the docks, go to the Dockland Museum, have a look at Canary Wharf. Episode 20 will be devoted to shops and markets, so we can have a look at the history of such famous institutions as Harrods and Fortnum and Masons, but also at some of London's arcades and markets. Episode 21 will be devoted to Hampton Court, Henry VIII's Tudor Palace, as it's known in shorthand, again lots of stories to tell from there, and for episode 22, Out to Windsor, which many people who come to London for a few days do like to visit. So I'm proposing to take you round Windsor Castle, along the river a little way, and to the very nearby village of Eton, which you may well have heard of in the context of Eton School. And to finish off then, a collection of more literary episodes, I think one on travel writers, extracts from some of the interesting people who've been to London over the centuries and what they thought about it, 
or in some cases, some ordinary people who had some very interesting ideas. And then to round off, two episodes of anthology, lots of literary pieces, which add to our picture of London. So a range of poems and of extracts from novels from across the centuries. And that, ladies and gentlemen, will then be that. I hope the series will be of interest to all sorts of people, whether you're a Londoner yourself, born within the sound of bow bells, or maybe the kind who arrived, like Dick Whittington, in search of fame or fortune, or perhaps you're one of the commuters who slogs in every day from the suburbs to work, maybe stays on for a theatre visit in the evening or to catch a lunchtime concert. And then especially for the rest of us, the tourists, the visitors. Whether you're planning or indeed have already done a once-in-a-lifetime trip to London, whether you're backpacking through, doing Britain and ticking off a few more European capitals as you go, or whether you're one of those people like me who's lucky enough to be able to visit London now and then, and who will probably never tire of doing so, because there's always a new little corner to explore, or an exhibition to catch, or a museum that you've always meant to go to, but not quite managed yet. Whatever your interest, I hope that if you come on the City Breaks journey with me, you'll hear lots of things of interest, and learn lots of things that will be of use when you're actually in London. So I hope that you'll join me next week for episode two, and on then to the rest of the series. I'm hoping there'll be one a week, there'll certainly be one most weeks. Might pause occasionally for a City Break Ideas episode. If you haven't come across those yet, do have a look on the website. They're the ones where I ask other people to suggest the city that they would like a City Break in, explain why in a few sentences, and then I string those together perhaps along with a visit or two to some interesting travel blogs that have something to say about cities, and generally try and inspire you to think about places to visit that perhaps you haven't considered yet. If you would like to suggest a city for a City Break Ideas episode, that would be great. You can contact me via the blog on the website, www.citybreakspodcast.co.uk, or you can email, the address being citybreaks at citybreakspodcast.co.uk. Comments very welcome, suggestions very welcome. And if you have enjoyed what you've heard, then what would be absolutely fab would be if you could leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and encourage other people to do the same. Possibly you know someone who's a traveller who might like the City Breaks approach to hear some history and some culture. And if you do and you could recommend us to them, that would be great. Okay, well that's quite enough for one episode. Thank you very much for listening and I look forward to your joining me again next week. Goodbye.